Podcast One Production. A friend in America has been working in public relations for more than 20 years, helping companies get the word out about what they're doing. Near the start of 2018, as prices for Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other cryptocurrencies reached stratospheric heights, my friend began to see the workflow change. Cryptocurrency companies, many of them about to launch their own initial coin offerings, they wanted to hire my friend in order to drum up interest in their coins. It started slowly, but by the end of the first quarter of the year, it had become my friend's entire business. Sign of the times. A few clients gave my friend payments options, settling the bill in cash or in Ethereum. Ethereum has become the cryptocurrency of choice because it's the one that's most often exchanged for new coins in an initial coin offering because the new coins have been created through the operation of an Ethereum smart contract. So flush with Ethereum, clients wanted to pay with the coin they had on hand. Okay, my friend said, but it wasn't that easy. My friend didn't have a digital wallet to hold that Ethereum, and by the time that got sorted and then had the Ethereum transferred to that wallet, the bubble had burst. Ethereum was worth less than it had been when my friend negotiated their price. A lot less. Suddenly, my friend had been paid half of what they'd expected to earn. And over the next months, my friend watched as the price dropped still further, down to a third of what they expected, a quarter, finally a fifth The number of Ethereum hadn't changed, but their value had. In our second episode, I confessed how I'd missed the boat on a quarter million dollar payment in Bitcoin. Reverse that. Imagine a business negotiating a quarter million dollar payment, but in the end, receiving only $50,000. You'd never want to be paid in cryptocurrency again. I'm Mark Pesci, and welcome to the sixth episode of Cryptonomics, a series dedicated to exploring and explaining the way cryptocurrencies and the technology underneath them, the blockchain, will transform our entire world. Along the way, we'll learn what makes it all tick, how people are using this technology to do amazing things, and what it all means for the future of money, finance, investing, and the economy. We'll speak to folks who have built successful businesses using the blockchain, some of whom have even created their own successful cryptocurrencies. We'll learn how things work, why they work, and when they don't. By the time we're finished, you should understand enough to make your own investment calls. You'll have the tools you need to investigate any cryptocurrency investment. Is it real? Is it wise? Is it a good investment? We can't answer these questions for you, but you'll learn which questions you need to ask and the sorts of answers you'll want to receive. But cryptocurrencies are only the tip of the iceberg. The whole field of blockchain isn't even a decade old, and it's already working its way into the core of some very established businesses, and it's being used as the foundation for some entirely new ones. Over the next billion seconds, the entire world of economics, everything that's touched by money, will be changed by this new technology. That's why we're calling this series Cryptonomics. When you look behind the ripples produced by the rise and fall in the price of Ethereum, you can see another wave, a tsunami of change that will roll over banks, stock markets, even nations. There's a lot of hype surrounding cryptocurrencies. Some of that hype is justified. It's a new way of doing business, and it will force businesses as old and established as banking to make way for it. 
When we come back, we'll ask one of the lingering questions about cryptocurrencies. If they're so good, why aren't we all using them? When you travel internationally, you use the local currency. The Japanese use the yen, the Thai have their baht, the Kiwis use their own version of the dollar. Each of these currencies has an exchange rate associated with it, the ratio of the relative value of one currency with respect to another. Exchange rates always float around a bit. They vary by a few tenths of a percent on any given day. There are armies of Forex, that's short for foreign exchange traders, who move currencies between nations, earning tiny fractions of a percent, but on moves of hundreds of millions of dollars. So it adds up. Now, on occasion, exchange rates between currencies move quickly. That's often in response to an economic shock or an evolving news situation. Currencies have no established value relative to one another. Their value is in how the market perceives that value. Is that economy strong? Can this country pay its debts? Is it being well run? Does that nation have a bright future? When these questions remain open and unanswered, the value of a nation's currency falls relative to countries that have positive, solid answers to those questions. That can be quite a problem for a person or a business trading internationally. You thought you had enough money set aside to pay for that big order and suddenly you don't. Now, this is not a new problem. International trading has been a substantial business for 500 years, and more than one company has suddenly found itself unable to cope with a sudden shift in an exchange rate. Now, the very biggest companies, they try to find ways around this. They hedge currencies by setting aside so much of one currency and so much of another currency, effectively setting them up almost as a set of balanced scales so that if the price of one goes up a lot with respect to the other, the business will simply be able to realize a profit on the increase to offset the extra costs. They'll sell some of the more expensive currencies so they have resources to cover the gap. But most companies, they don't have those kinds of resources. They can't hedge their foreign exchange transactions. And that means most businesses won't trade in currencies that are too volatile. They'll insist on being paid in a known, stable currency, such as U.S. dollars or euros or Swiss francs. My friend had those incredible shrinking Ethereum. That's simply the latest version of a very old problem. And there's a solution to that problem from within the world of cryptocurrencies. It's known as the stablecoin. A stablecoin is a cryptocurrency whose value is pegged to another currency. One of these, perhaps the most well-known, is a cryptocurrency known as Tether. It gets that name because the value of the Tether coin is tethered to the value of the U.S. dollar. One Tether equals one U.S. dollar. It's as easy as that. Well, sort of. You can't just wave a magic crypto wand and establish a fixed exchange rate between one currency and another. Things don't work that way. Otherwise, people would be able to whip up billions of dollars just by saying their coins are tethered to some widely used currency. So every stablecoin needs to be backed up by a reserve of value. 
The folks who created the tether say that for every tether coin, there is one U.S. dollar held in reserve guaranteeing its value. So in that sense, tether is a proxy for the U.S. dollar. You've taken your U.S. dollars, you've exchanged them for tethers, but they're still worth the same amount, and that should never change. But the devil's in the details. Every holder of tether coins has to believe that the tether company holds a U.S. dollar for every tether coin issued. If that weren't true, tethers would lose their tether to the dollar. But how can we know if that's the case? Now, if this were a bank, we'd send in the auditors, they'd take a look at the assets, the number of dollars held, and weigh them against the liabilities, the number of tether coins issued, to see whether it all balanced. And you're relying on the accuracy of the auditor, the integrity of the auditor. Everything depends on that audit. A stable coin can't be stable unless it is well supported by transparent business and accounting practices. Otherwise, you're just letting someone talk you into taking some money they've printed up in the back room with nothing to back it up other than their word. But here's the thing. Despite repeated efforts, Tether has had trouble finding an auditor willing to perform that audit. In the middle of 2018, Tether's general counsel said, quote, the bottom line is that an audit cannot be obtained, end quote. It's all a bit new, Tether seems to be saying, and the auditors, they haven't been able to keep up. Now, it's not entirely surprising that auditors are a bit overcautious about unusual exercises in cryptocurrency hedging. No one's really seen anything like this before. Tether, the biggest of the stablecoins, pegged to the U.S. dollar, can't quite prove that it's doing things right. But there's another way to do all of this. Something that's much simpler, much more straightforward. It's the elephant in the room. It's staring us right in the face. It's so obvious, we must purposely be choosing to overlook it. Why have a cryptocurrency that's a proxy for the U.S. dollar when you could simply issue the U.S. dollar as a cryptocurrency? Now, this idea, national currencies on blockchains, it's known as a Fed coin. And it's not a new idea. People have been floating the idea of Fed coins for a few years now. And as it became clear that Bitcoin was secure and had those three essential qualities of money, authenticity, auditability, and uniqueness, people began to suggest that possibly national currencies could do well by putting themselves on a blockchain. And I was one of those folks. Here's an excerpt of a talk that I gave in Auckland, New Zealand back in 2015 in which I tried to convince the Kiwis that a digital New Zealand dollar would propel their currency to international importance. Now, that digital currency doesn't need to be something as exotic as Bitcoin. IBM has very recently announced that it's doing some work in progress with the U.S. Federal Reserve to create a U.S. dollar-denominated digital currency. And while Bitcoin has a role to play in On the Planet of the Apps, most national currencies will be reborn as digital currencies over the next several years. This is an area where New Zealand could leapfrog other nations. 
particularly other nations in this corner of Asia, by leading the way into a digital currency version of the New Zealand dollar. A digital New Zealand dollar would be the spark that launches a thousand apps. We'd see apps talking to other apps. We'd see apps analyzing the flow of digital currency through a smartphone and then through to a business and feed that information back to the business owner to improve their business. Once we get digital currency on our smartphones, we can start to build value chains. We can connect app to app to app. And we can do that to build things beyond anything we've yet imagined. Now, I gave that talk against a backdrop of reports and rumors from central banks around the world, from the U.S., from Singapore, from China, from Switzerland, among others, that all of them were taking their first fledgling steps toward issuing Fed coins. It all seemed quite close in 2015, but it hasn't happened. None of those nations have issued their own central bank-backed cryptocurrencies. Why? Central bankers are very careful folks. Their first concern isn't inflation or the unemployment rate. It's the stability of the currency. It's their job to make sure that the currency retains its value over the long term to prevent an economic collapse. Transitioning to a new form of currency, even one that they'd have complete control over, that was never going to be quick. Some of that is a go-slow approach that emphasizes safety. Some of that is that these central banks have to make sure the economy itself is ready for the transition. All of the banks, most of the larger businesses, all of them have to be ready to work with a national cryptocurrency from the moment it's introduced. That is a huge task in an economy the size of the United States or China and only marginally easier in Singapore or Switzerland. So although Fed coins seem like a very natural step, it's also a very big step. Yet it's already happened. There's already one country that had a go with its own Fed coin. Back in 1999, Ecuador had hit a triple crisis point in its economy. Its banks were failing, it was groaning under a huge load of debt, and as a result, its currency, the Sucre, had fallen in value. There was a real risk of hyperinflation. People would need stacks of cash even to buy essentials like food and petrol. The Central Bank of Ecuador put a stop to that with a tether. They tied the value of the Sucre to the U.S. dollar, 25,000 to 1. 30 years before, the Sucre was worth 25 to a dollar. Now, that revaluation of the Sucre, it wiped out savings all across Ecuador, but it also kept the Sucre from depreciating. This tether, known as dollarization, allowed Ecuador to adopt the dollar as its currency. Now, there are many places in the world where U.S. dollars are accepted as de facto currency. But in Ecuador, the entire economy had moved to the U.S. dollar. They started to import huge amounts of banknotes from the United States, and they slowly replaced the devalued Sucre. Ecuador's dollar tether stopped the collapse, but it came at a cost. 
its central bank lost control of monetary policy. If the Americans decided to print more dollars or raise interest rates, Ecuador had to suck it up. Importing all of those banknotes from the U.S. proved to be expensive. By 2015, Ecuador was spending $3 million a year replacing worn banknotes with new ones imported from the United States. But why circulate banknotes at all? Why not create a cryptocurrency of the Ecuadorian tether to the U.S. dollar and then let people spend those crypto dollars via their smartphones? That's exactly what Ecuador tried in its system for digital currency. Believing it would create a new and thoroughly digital economy, Ecuador introduced its digital currency back in 2015, only to see the project sputter and fail. It closed down just two years later. Why? Well, it was a numbers game. You need everyone using your fancy new crypto dollars. All of the banks, all of the merchants, all of their customers. And that never happened. Again, this is likely why we haven't seen a major currency create their own cryptocurrency. The infrastructure for money has to move as one in an economy. It's difficult, it's expensive to accommodate parallel systems of money, banknotes and cryptocurrencies. In theory, they're complementary. In practice, banks, businesses and people, they want to use one or the other. Does that mean we'll never see a national cryptocurrency? No, but it does mean that the smaller countries, Singapore, Switzerland, they probably have an advantage over a China or a Eurozone or an America because the sheer size of those financial systems work against change. Now, until we have Fed coins, we're going to need stable coins. And after the break, we'll talk to someone who has created their own stable coin. Since we don't have a Fed coin, can a stable coin fill the gap? And we're back on cryptonomics. Now, in that talk I gave in 2015, I did explore a lot about payments and how payments really can't live on our smartphones today. We may think they do, but really they live on our credit cards and our smartphones use that credit card data when we pay for a taxi fare or a meal delivery. And there's a disconnect between the smartphone and money. And this is exactly where I reckon a cryptocurrency could be really helpful because it creates a way for apps to pay one another directly for products and services without having to go to a bank and incurring the kinds of fees that make it difficult to process small transactions. And there are a lot of people, most people actually, who don't own a credit card. There are 4 billion people using smartphones. Maybe a billion of them have credit cards. But all of them want to trade. So how can they do that if we don't have a Fed coin? Well, our next guest on Cryptonomics has an answer. Kane Warwick is the founder and CEO of Haven, a Sydney-based startup creating a stable coin explicitly designed to smooth the wheels of commerce. Kane, welcome to Cryptonomics. Thanks for having me. So tell us about Haven. What is Haven? So Haven is a stable coin which uh, is a cryptocurrency that's designed to enable stable payments. Uh, our view and the view of a lot of people is that if you don't have stability uh, in a cryptocurrency, then it won't be used for payments. And we've seen that with Bitcoin. We've seen that with a lot of the other cryptocurrencies. The volatility stops them from being used as payments. So stable relative 
to relative to fiat currencies, so the Australian dollar, U.S. dollar, etc. Because you just want your purchasing power. You know, most goods and services are denominated in fiat currencies. Almost all of them are. Um, So you want uh, a cryptocurrency that can uh, track. A fiat currency, a U.S. dollar, Australian dollar, etc. And so, have you created then your own cryptocurrency that is then is it tethered, or how does it sort of manage the fact that it stays stable? That's a that's that's the challenge, right? That's the the key challenge. So the way that we set up our system is we've got a collateral pool, and against that collateral pool, you can issue another currency. So there's two tokens in our system. Uh, there's a collateral token, which is the Haven token, and then you've got a token called NUSD, which is essentially issued against those collateral tokens. And in order to do that issuance, you have to lock the collateral up. Okay, so this means that, so NUSD then being tethered to a US dollar. That's correct, yeah. So if I want to issue an NUSD, I take that pool of collateral and I put a dollar away in a vault. Essentially, yes. You you actually lock up more uh, value than the NUSD uh, is worth to protect against currency fluctuations. Just in case, say, the president decides that they want to have a trade war and the price of the NUSD then has to reflect the fact that the price of the USD is taking a tumble. That's right. Okay, so you have this great big collateral pool, or let me put it this way. We believe you have this great big collateral pool because we've already seen and we've already talked on this program about the tether coin. And with that, it's not so much that Tether's necessarily done things right or wrong, but the latest statement from them is they haven't been able to find an auditor who's willing to actually do the audit. And so, in some sense, everyone is taking it on faith that Tether has in their vault one US dollar for every Tether coin that they've issued. How do you avoid that problem? I mean, that's the fundamental issue with uh, using off-chain assets as collateral. So whether you're using gold or dollars in a bank account or whatever, you're introducing trust. And cryptocurrencies... Take our word for it. (laughs) Exactly. And and cryptocurrencies are about trustlessness. The idea is that you don't need to trust someone. I don't need to trust you. Uh, We can both uh, transact with each other, if we're using Bitcoin, for example, without requiring a third party to trust uh, that the transaction is going to be administered. So because you then have this asset pool over here, that asset pool is on... It's on-chain. On-chain. So that means that I can go and inspect all of it and assure myself without checking with you or an auditor or anyone else that, in fact, all of those assets are there. That's exactly right. But that pool of assets, that itself is a cryptocurrency. It is, yes. So where does it get its value from? That's that's the, the key. So in our case, uh, that cryptocurrency gets its value from the transactions or the future transactions that people will believe will occur in the network. So the way that Haven works is it's uh, similar to like a decentralized PayPal. So PayPal uh, is a uh, for-profit entity. It's a company that operates a network that allows merchants and consumers to pay each other. Every single time a transaction happens, a transaction fee is charged to the merchant or or the person who's making the payment. And those transactions are all uh, sent to that central entity, that company, and they're paid to shareholders as dividends. 
which is how PayPal works and why people want to be involved in it. And it's a, you know, it's a uh, very good business. And how Peter made his first billion dollars. Absolutely. And and so, you know, payment networks are a very, uh, very good business model. Uh, they're very sticky. Uh, they're, you know, they have very strong network effects. And so what we've said is, what if you could have those same network effects, but you didn't require that central authority. Mm -hmm. Because the way that PayPal works is they operate a database that they control. They can freeze it, they can move it, they can do whatever they want. They've got total control over that database. And in fact, there's an example of Alex Jones, the American podcaster, broadcaster, being locked out of PayPal because PayPal didn't agree with what he was saying. It happens to merchants as well, where they say, we don't you know, uh, we don't want you in the network, so they kick merchants out, uh, they can freeze merchant accounts, all kinds of things like that. Uh, which means that there's risk then to people who are operating within that network. It's a trust-based network. You're trusting PayPal. The reason why people generally trust PayPal is because it's a multi-billion dollar company. And so people have a, a sense that it's large enough to continue to you know, operate the network that, that it operates. What we've tried to do is remove that requirement of trust take it away. So the idea is instead of having one single pool of value, we have a distributed pool. So I'm a haven holder. You could be a haven holder. Uh, anyone uh, who likes to be a haven holder can be a haven holder. They can then lock their collateral and issue tokens into the network. And the, uh, the transactions are tracked by the blockchain in our case, by the Ethereum blockchain. So people don't need to trust uh, anyone that the transaction has occurred. They can trust that the Ethereum blockchain will maintain uh, the security of the network uh, and that, as you say, they can look and inspect the collateral pool and see at all times that there's enough collateral to support the circulating currency that's being transacted in the network. But every single time a transaction occurs, just like PayPal, we charge a fee and that fee is paid into a pool for all of the collateral token holders who are supporting this network. Work. So, so if you hold these Haven coins and you lock them up and then issue coins that are, are backed by what I've locked up, you basically then earn what's effectively kind of an interest payment on them. You, you're basically paid a stability fee. So you're providing stability into this network and you're locking your capital up in order to do it, to provide that, uh, that assurance. Uh, it's just that there's a distributed pool of people who are doing it rather than a single entity that you know, has arbitrary power of the network. So you're taking one of the functions of, I think some, it some, sits somewhere between a central bank and a bank, both of which do this in various different ways. And you're basically saying, okay, everyone can now do this because we've established a, a, a network, a smart contract and a capital pool and that all three of these are now working together to create the same feature. That's correct, yeah. As you said, you need to over-collateralize. In other words, you need to have more assets locked up because you're dealing with fluctuations in various prices of, of uh, the tether to a U.S. dollar. That's fine. That makes sense. And we can audit it, which means that we can, anyone who's using a Haven coin can check to see whether there's as much there as you're claiming. How do you get enough people using Haven? Because the example that we've quoted earlier in this episode was the example of Ecuador going to its digital currency, which it then had to drop after about two years because no one took it up. Mm -hmm. Right? They were using it in taxi cabs, but the government itself didn't have a deployment strategy and currencies require pervasive usage in order to 
actually achieve any form of usability, right? You have to have all the banks, all large businesses, most of the merchants, and most of the people using them. So does Haven have a sort of chicken and egg question around it about how you get enough people using it to get Haven actually into that virtuous cycle of being used? And would that be true for any stablecoin? I think it's true for all stablecoins. I think it's true for any new form of money. Uh, you know, even new monetary technologies like credit cards, et cetera. You know, they they all need to have some. Uh, we need someone who's going to accept the credit cards. I mean, you absolutely. go to Japan now, and they still don't kind of take credit cards. Yep. Yeah, I was. I just got back from ETH Berlin, and I was shocked to to see how little uh, credit card adoption there is uh, in Germany. You know, it's I think about eighty percent of transactions are still cash. Yeah, and it's uh, just like Japan. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so, so the, I guess the question is, how do you get people? to adopt uh, new technologies. And in Australia, we're, uh, um, you know, one of the, I guess, leading countries for like NFC payments, for example. You know, the the adoption rate of new payment technologies in Australia is very, very high, uh, but it isn't in all places, uh, you know, around the world. And as you kind of alluded to at the beginning, a lot of people don't even have banks. So you can't have a credit card if you don't have a bank, et cetera. So uh, it's a, it is a very challenging uh, problem to solve. So the, the approach that we've taken is go to a place where you can be, uh, in the words of Peter Thiel, 10 times better, right? You need, to, you need to be a 10 times better technology to get people to adopt it mm-hmm. in significant numbers. And in crypto, for transactions that occur within crypto ecosystems and marketplaces that are, that are driven by crypto, particularly Ethereum, uh, the only real option you have is to make your own payment token or use ETH. And we believe that people will be much more interested in using a stablecoin if there is a viable decentralized stablecoin that can power these economies. Okay, so what you're basically saying is we've built a better mousetrap. And because we've built a better mousetrap, then commercial enterprises can feel comfortable accepting this coin, integrating that into their payments regime. And so in some sense, it is almost exactly, because you you did mention PayPal, and I think in some ways you're positioning yourselves, not so much as a competitor, but as an alternative, that you're now going to find yourself integrated into all of these other merchant pathways. And Bitcoin went the same way, but the problem with Bitcoin is that it was either not particularly stable in terms of its price day-to-day or its transaction processing and print transaction fees became very expensive. If Haven gets very popular, will it start to be slow down? I mean, do we have to worry about the fact that at some level popularity is both a win and a loss for a stable coin? It is a problem, uh, particularly when you're operating on Ethereum. Because we know Ethereum has scaling issues, uh, we've seen that with you know some of the DApps that have gained uh, significant DApps being distributed apps. So so smart contract programs that are running on Ethereum network games like CryptoKitties, for example, which was you know collectible cats on the blockchain. Uh, they had a significant impact on the Ethereum blockchain. So the Ethereum blockchain is not yet ready to handle. PayPal level transaction throughput or, or you know Visa level transaction throughput, uh, but that said, there are a lot of very smart people working on scalability uh, solutions across a, a number of different approaches. So we have a, a, a belief that Ethereum will scale and that it will be able to support significant transaction volumes and, and throughput. Uh, but we're also exploring other blockchains. So we announced about a month ago that we we're going to be uh, implementing on EOS as well. Uh, and we're looking at some additional uh, chains like Zilliqa, for example. So, you know, for us, we see ourselves as kind of a payment 
layer right. uh, on the blockchain. And so any blockchain that's got significant adoption, we want to support. King Warwick, thank you very much for joining us on Cryptonomics. Thanks for having me. A few months ago, I reached out to my friend in America with the PR firm because I was asking for some help publicizing this series in the U.S. We've been working hard to make sure that cryptonomics is visible over there. And when the bill came, well, my friend requested payment in good, old, boring, stable U.S. dollars. Can a stable coin become the foundation for a new smartphone-based money? Well... If we don't see a Fed coin soon, I'm positive that's exactly what's going to happen. The need to work with money on our smartphones is growing every day. And it's being led by people with no real links to the banking system. Billions of unbanked and underbanked who don't have credit cards, but who need to spend cash and all of whom have smartphones. The opportunity is there and it might come from Africa or India because the disconnect in those places is greater and the need greater still. We need a fully digital currency and we'll have it long before the next billion seconds. If you'd like to learn more about Ecuador's experiment in Fed coins, IBM's work with the U.S. Federal Reserve, or more about Kane Warwick and Haven Stablecoin, cruise on over to our website at cryptonomics.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you want to learn as much as you like. That's cryptonomics.show. The Next Billion Seconds Cryptonomics was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Matt Nikolic. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening.